This is Season 2 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast about Japanese sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not-yet-fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 40 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 2.31, Nothing New Under the Sun, and we are your hosts. I'm Tom, lifelong Gundam fan, and this week my research is a cliffhanger. I've heard that's good for ratings. And I'm Nina, new to Zeta, and thanks to this week's research, feeling a little more understanding of Camille. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 273 patrons. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest patrons, Michael B., Gabriel G., Zachary T., and Jack B. If you'd like to support Mobile Suit Breakdown and get access to our patron discord, bonus content, and more, you can do so at GundamPodcast.com slash Patreon. This month, our bonus episode for Patreon is the second part of Zero Context Counterattack, in which I drag some relatively new Gundam fans to watch Char's Counterattack, and then we talk about what they thought of it. You can find it now on GundamPodcast.com slash Patreon. We also just launched our Mobile Suit Breakdown Season 2 giveaway on Friday, January 24th. Love is the pulse of the memes. To enter, create a love-themed Gundam meme and post it to social media. Hashtag love is the pulse of the memes and tag at Gundam podcast in your post. If you're not on social media, you can send it to us by email, but we will post it on social media. There are a couple of restrictions, one entry per person per week. The content should be all ages appropriate and spoiler free, which is to say no Gundam content past Zeta episode 30 for now. Uh, We will update as we make additional progress in the show. The deadline is 11.59 p.m. New York time on Friday, February 14th. Everyone who enters will be eligible to win one of our fabulous prizes. Winners will be announced Saturday, February 22nd. The grand prize will be the best meme as voted on by our patrons. Two runner-up prizes will be selected by each of us picking our favorites, and one will be chosen randomly. Anyone can enter by submitting at least one qualifying meme. This week we are covering Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam Episode 30, Jared's Desperate Attack. After the recap and our talk pack, our research for this episode covers kissing in Japan, and Ayug, Melanie Hugh Carbine, and the Young Officer's Revolt of 1936. But first, let's tune in to TNN. I find myself on the threshold of the most exhilarating journey. Adventure. The whole Earth sphere stretches out before me, like an open road. Possibility. Each step draws me further into the uncanny realms of the human spirit. Connection. Beyond the gravity well, every smell, every sight, every sound closes in on you. Sensation. There is a tremendous pressure pushing against the thin membrane between the self and the universe. Desire. Looking down on the Mother Earth, I saw my life in a whole new light. Power. 
I perceived the incredible fragility of our species. Dangar. Dangar for men. The new fragrance from Atelier Paptimus. Available now in sizes small, large, and colony at Bon Boni. And now the recap for Jared's desperate attack. In a swanky Chinese restaurant in Von Braun City, Wong Li sits at a table in a private room, drink in hand, tie loosened, grilling Quattro about Ayug's recent activities. He feels they've been too much on the defensive, but Quattro is leery of aggressive tactics that could make Ayug look like terrorists. A knock on the door signals the arrival of Melanie Hugh Carbine, Ayug Backer, and Li's boss. Springing to his feet and adjusting his tie, Lee motions for Carbine to join them, and they begin to discuss what to do now that Axis has made their move and brought their base to the Earth sphere. Quattro will take the Argama, make contact, and attempt to negotiate an alliance. But will the remnants of Zeon, who have rallied around young Mineva Zabi, really negotiate in good faith? On the Alexandria, Jared and Moar confront Captain Gadi. Yazan's squad has launched. Why were they held back? In planning his latest attack on the Ayug ships, Gadi has set a trap. They will catch the Argama between Yazan's squadron and the Alexandria, driving it to take cover in a nearby abandoned colony. There, Jared and Moar will wait. If they can destroy the Argama, Ayug's pilots, including Camille, will be left with nowhere to run, and Jared may finally be able to destroy his nemesis. As they zip up their normal suits, Moar expresses her concern over Jared's obsession, but Jared feels stuck. I can't move forward. Camille is a wall blocking my way. Drifting across the room, Moar kisses him and declares, I'll always be there for you. Yazan's squadron reaches the Argama and the Radish, and the two ships order their gunners to fire until Ayug mobile suits launch. The Alexandria manages to catch the Argama off guard, approaching from below and landing a hit on the unprepared ship. Bright curses himself for leaving the Argama with no mobile suits for defense. Out of the corner of his eye, Camille spots the laser fire and turns around to aid the Argama. Fa immediately peels off and follows him. In the meantime, Jared and Moar have reached the ambush position, their gabblay clinging to asteroids for cover. All they can do now is wait and see if Gadi's plan has worked. They do not have to wait for long. Caught between the Alexandria and its mobile suit complement, Bright orders the Argama to set a course for the nearby empty colony. Emerging at the last possible moment, Jared and Moar fire, leaving the Argama no time to evade their attacks. The direct hit causes damage across the ship, with fires breaking out everywhere from the living quarters to one of the catapult decks. Shinta and Kum, the two young children Quattro brought aboard, are trapped, huddled in the smoky halls of the living quarters. Camille, Fa, and Emma arrive to fend off this new attack on the Argama, but Fa almost immediately senses the children's distress. She rushes to put out the fire on the outside of the ship before leaving her mobile suit so that she could lead the children to safety. As they move through the passageways, another explosion blasts a hatchway door from its hinges. Fa shields Shinta and Kum, but is knocked unconscious. Emma focuses on defending the bridge while Camille takes on Jared and Moar directly. He finally gets a clear shot at Jared, but time seems to slow as Moar puts herself in the path of the lethal strike. In those endless fractions of seconds, Camille and Jared both freeze, stunned, 
until Moir's gabfle is blown apart. Jared goes into a frenzy and Camille can feel his rage, but manages to shoot the legs from Jared's mobile suit, and the force of these attacks knocks Jared unconscious. Seeming to float in a bright, colorful expanse, Jared sees a light so bright he is forced to squeeze his eyes shut and look away. Pink flower petals on strange breezes rush by him, and he sees a ghost or shadow of Moar standing next to him. But when he reaches for her, his hand passes through the apparition. He hears her voice encouraging him, telling him that he will never lose, that he is the one able to guide the world in the proper direction, and that the right path for him is to survive and fight on. When he wakes, his left arm is numb, but Moar's likeness appears before him again, reaching toward him, and as he goes to take her hand, he finds his previously immobile arm has moved and is grasping the controls of his mobile suit. Moar is gone. He fights and rages, killing two Nemo pilots and shooting an arm off the Methus, but Emma and Camille are able to keep him away from the Argama. Forced to retreat, Jared stops in the wreckage of the battle and finally cries for Moar. Bright thanks Emma for her successful defense of the ship, and she credits Camille with keeping the Titan's pilots occupied. She also asks Bright not to be too hard on Fa for disobeying orders during the battle, but they both wonder if Fa is really cut out to be a pilot. Leaning on Rekoa's arm, a heavily bandaged Fa arrives, clearly braced for dressing down. When Bright thanks her instead for saving the children and putting out the living quarters fire, she turns away in relief and embarrassment, tears in her eyes. Shinta and Kum rush to her, grateful for Fao Nye-san looking after them, and happy to see her on her feet again. Camille smiles at the scene before memories of the fight make him solemn. He struggles to control the expression on his face as he thinks to himself that at least the dead shed no tears. Welcome back to another edition of Mobile Suits and Misogyny, a podcast about all of the terrible things Gundam characters have to say about gender. (sighs) That's all for this week on... (laughs) (laughs) And here I thought we would start by talking about some obvious uh, wealth and class stuff that comes up this episode. We open on a city street that made me think of New York. I don't know why. And there's a Chinese restaurant... I bring up class because this is obviously a very uh, fancy establishment. Everyone is very dressed up. There are all these private rooms. It's uh, clearly a place where rich, powerful people come. It is also the only time and place we have ever seen Wong Lee cutting loose. He is drunk. (laughs) And I say this because his voice is raised. His tie is loosened. He keeps pounding on the table. This is not the cool, calm, collected... Wong Lee that we see around the table at the back of the McDaniel. (laughs) Absolutely true. I didn't see him and think he was drunk, but I definitely identified that Wong Lee is under some pressure. Wong Lee is feeling tense. He's got a rather stiff drink in front of him. He does, but most of it's still there. But how many has he already (laughs) finished? That's the question. Fair question. He seems pretty nervous about this meeting. Yeah, and the moment this unnamed party shows up, he tightens up his tie, (laughs) stands up, pulls himself together. I'm going to fulfill my sometimes role on this podcast of putting a name to the nameless. Okay. 
Because I'm not sure that you're supposed to look at this guy and wonder, who is he? What's his name? What's his connection to all of this? I think this might just be a case of the show not telling you things because they're not essential and Tomino does not like exposition. (laughs) He doesn't. Totally fair. So who is he? This is the previously mentioned Melanie Hugh Carbine. Okay. And he is Wong Lee's boss. I was expecting a woman. You would with that name, yeah. But okay. I mean, the overwhelming vibe here is Wong's like impatience mm. and nervousness. His discussion with Quattro of like, shouldn't AU be more aggressive or too defensive? You know, he's so detached, he can't see what Quattro sees that if they are too aggressive, they look like terrorists. I read all of that as Wong really being worried about this meeting with his boss. Like Wong is worried about his performance review. He's so diffident to uh, Melanie Hugh Carbine from the moment he walks into the room in a way that he never is with anybody else. Wong's so imperious all the time. I was going to say, this scene makes him look like a middle manager, which maybe he is, but you never get that impression before this scene. Yeah. The way he runs off and is like, I'll go take care of making sure the Argama is available for you right away. And you get the impression that Melanie Hugh Carbine is in fact here to talk to Quattro, not to talk to Wong Lee. Yeah, that maybe Wong Lee has been Carbine's go-between the whole time, his agent, his stand-in. And so Wong is both eager to show results. I mean, that's why he asks Quattro to be more aggressive. And he is quick to jump to whenever he perceives that there's something he can do for his boss. I think he's also eager to get out of the room. I can't remember if I said this on the podcast or not, but I would just like to mention I was right about Minova. I predicted that <laughs> because Minova survived, she could potentially be like someone remnants of Zeon would rally around, supporters of the zombies would rally around. Although at this point, she's what, seven, eight? Yeah. So she's a puppet. She's a figurehead. Yeah. Presumably. Or a creepily brilliant eight-year-old. <laughs> Which, this being Gundam, who knows? We know it was influenced by Dune. And when I think creepily brilliant children, yep. I think Dune. Yep, yep. And here we get a classic quattroism, which is when they're discussing Axis, he asks, do you think that remnants of Zeon loyal to one of the Zabis could have honorable intentions? And it's not clear if it's a rhetorical question or if he's actually asking... And it's not clear what he thinks the answer is, because the question seems to imply, no, they couldn't, especially given what we know about Shar and his history with the Zabis. But then why is he going to try to make a deal with them? Why take the chance? And Melanie Hugh Carbine sort of smiles knowingly and says, well, it can't hurt to try. I wonder if they don't just think of it as uh, a marriage of convenience kind of thing Mm. that like they need allies right now. and. No, Axis are not ideal allies in any respect, but it beats them potentially siding with the Titans, which they know is a risk. So they have an interest in preventing Axis from allying with the Titans, even if that means allying with them themselves when they don't really feel like they're trustworthy Mm -hmm. or that the goals necessarily align. One does not get the impression from the scene that Carbine is an ideologue. Carbine seems to be a pretty savvy, cunning operator who is playing the Ayuk side for his own advancement. Here's a question for you, one which I have a theory about. Why does Quattro need the Argama? Specifically, 
to go meet with Axis. Well, the Argama is his pet project. It's his own little white base he's creating. I was going to say, it's because of the new types. He has strong suspicions of new type ability of a bunch of members of the crew. And I think he needs that. I wonder how many members of Axis, and it's unclear at this point how much when they say Axis, they mean the base itself versus a whole organization that maybe does not only exist in this one base. <laughs> yeah, we should mention it's a dropped line during this conversation, but Axis, the asteroid, has arrived in the Earth sphere. Right. But if they have been living outside the Earth sphere this whole time, the likelihood of a lot of them being new types seems pretty high, given what little we know in the world that like being in battle can make you a new type. A bunch of them, I'm sure, are veterans of the one-year war. Living deeper into space seems to make it more likely for you to be a new type. They have been living outside the Earth sphere for more than half a decade now, almost a whole decade. Uh, we also don't know what became of the Flanagan Institute. Ooh. Right. Ooh. Some portion of the Flanagan Institute's uh, research apparatus might have ended up with the Xeon remnants on Axis. And if so, they may have been doing active work similar to what the new type labs in the Earth sphere have been doing in order to identify and train up new types. So it's possible that he feels like new types will provide a necessary connection. Like, oh, mm. you guys are mostly new types. We've got some new types. Like, Or if they are sort of like space-noid supremacists or new type supremacists, they may not respect anybody who shows up without any new types or I don't know exactly what flavor the interaction will take on, but I do think it's because Quattro thinks the, the new type members of the Argama crew are going to be in some way essential to whatever discussions he has with Axis. But here's another possibility. Back in First Gundam, Shar seemed to have come to the conclusion that one of the keys to bringing out a person's new type potential was to put them into close contact with other new types. Mm. He talked about how Lala brought Amaro's new type potential out. Mm -hmm. And we talked about how Lala functioned as a kind of guru for Shar. Maybe he knows that there are new types on Axis and he wants to bring his new types into close contact with them as part of his plan to bring out their new typeness. I could see that. And we see some of that in this episode. The conflict between Jared and Camille seems to be bringing out further depths of new type ability from both of them. And it's fair to remember, we don't necessarily trust any of Char's apparent motives. I don't necessarily trust that he's all that committed to Ayug's goals. I always sort of assume he has goals of his own that have not been conveyed <laughs> to the rest of us. And so it would make sense for him to have reasons other than the sort of stated one of, oh, I'm going to try to get us some new allies for going and taking on this mission. And no doubt he does want to defeat the Titans, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he's on board for the whole AU program. Although I guess he's in charge now. The AU program is his program. But he has investors he's beholden to. He has investors. I'm just saying, I think when you said he may not be entirely on board with the AU program, no one has clearly stated, and this comes back to how Tom and I really want like a detailed analysis of the politics and economics of this <laughs> world. No one has clearly stated, okay, well, if 
the colonies are no longer part of the Federation, what is their government? Who is in charge? Is it democratic? Are there elections? How are those held? What representation do the colonies get? How are they divvied up? How is, you know, all the nitty gritty of all of this has never been explicitly stated to us. But from my perspective, replacing a bunch of Earth-based oligarchs with a group of backroom space-noid oligarchs is not much of an improvement. (laughs) This is a small improvement, I grant you, but not much of one. And it's not hard to see in this a parallel to the progress of actual human political history here on Earth and the succession from government where leaders are qualified based on heredity. The people born on Earth are born into those positions of power and prestige to one where power is derived from business acumen, from wealth and industrial power. That's Wong and Melanie Hugh Carbine and all of these backroom oligarchs who are funding and arming Ayug. This feels like the liberal bourgeoisie revolutionaries. And then you actually have the downtrodden people of space who are really left out in both of these systems. Their lives are not particularly improved if the boot is on Wong Lee's foot instead of Jamatov Hyman's. Jared is always shocked when Moar kisses him. <laughs> He's always like, oh, Moar? Scandalous. Jared has low self-esteem. Jared does not expect that Moar would be into him, even after she's demonstrated it over and over again. It was like Dr. Shar was telling us last time, right? The boost in confidence from that first time that Moar kissed him lasted a little while, and then he just cratered. Jared does not feel good about himself. It's funny. I didn't interpret it that way at all. I interpreted it as she's breaking some social rules, Mm. and that's why he's shocked, either because... She's the one initiating the kiss, not him, or because they're in a relatively public place, even though there's nobody else around. Mm. She's breaking some social (laughs) restrictions on how this is supposed to go down. Maybe. And so it's very surprising to him. Maybe after she kissed him, he's like, more, you aren't allowed to strike a superior officer. (laughs) Even with your lips. You assaulted me with your lips. Except she didn't. He was totally into it. Totally. I was struck in this scene by its similarity to the kissing scene between Shar and Lala back in First Gundam. Mm, Well, and and they go on to parallel Shar and Lala exactly. Yeah, it was a striking similarity both in that it immediately preceded the fight in which Moar dies, but also the unexpectedness of the kiss, even if the roles are a little bit reversed there, and the setting of it in a pilot's ready room as they're zipping up their flight suits to go out into the battle. Mm -hmm. They have this emotional kiss. They talk about how they're going to protect each other. And then Moar goes and does a Lala thing and jumps in front of a beam and gets killed. Like It's a conscious callback. Absolutely. Which you were not impressed by this one. It was much more emotionally impactful when it was Amuro, because he had a relationship with Lala. He didn't want to kill Lala. Camille is shocked that Moar would do such a thing. Camille's like confused. Why would anyone do that? But he would have killed Moar in battle. Then, you know, yeah. he's not horrified by what he's done and the way that Amuro was horrified by what had just happened. And it's not going to be scarring in the same way. Not that it not that it has to be. Not that stories have to brutalize their characters to be meaningful. 
But I've had so many problems with Moar's character development in the past few episodes that between the fact that it's not as impactful for Camille and the fact that I just didn't feel as impacted by it, yeah, it fell a little flat for me. I liked it better watching it the second time. Okay. Well, I want to talk about two different parts of that. First, while it's not scarring for Camille, it is scarring for Jared. We get the scene of Jared in new type space talking to Moar. He sees the like flower petals. They're probably cherry blossom petals, which are usually a metaphor for death because of how fleeting they are. It's very beautiful. It's very emotional for him. They are especially a metaphor for the deaths of warriors and and young warriors, especially because mm. cherry blossoms last so little time. They're very beautiful, but you have them for a week and then they're gone. So we get a scene for Jared that feels like the sort of scene you would give a hero, the protagonist. And you have Moar telling him how great he's going to be. He has this communion moment with her after death, which is very similar to the one that Amaro had with Lala after her death in First Gundam. Shar did not have a communion moment with that, or if he did, it wasn't depicted. So in this, we actually get a switching of the roles. Camille is the Shar here. Jared, the Amaro. Mm -hmm. And we see perhaps in that, that Camille is Quattro's protege. Yeah. In this echo of first Gundam, we're seeing it from the other side, from the other perspective. We get some really fabulous visual and sound design choices with the two of them as well when they're waiting for the fight to start it cuts in really close so all you can see of them is their eyes and there's sort of a shaft of light across each of their eyes and all you can hear is their breathing so claustrophobic so that is exactly the word that i wrote down tense and claustrophobic and then once it's clear that moar is going to die but slightly before the attack actually hits it cuts in closer and closer to her in slow motion. And at first you can't see her through her visor. It's just the reflection. And then you finally see her face. Once Jared is in what Tom called new type space, we get the petals, as he mentioned. There's also a point at which Moir is embodied by a very bright light. And you feel how bright it is because Jared squeezes his eyes shut and turns his head away, which I thought was a nice detail. Yeah. Like this overwhelming brightness. And then after his sort of berserker frenzy is over, Jared stops to look for Moar to see if there's a body um, or any other remnants. And he sees her mobile suit in pieces flying by and he cries. So I interpreted that not as him looking for her body, but as him having blanked out the memory of her death. That after everything has happened, he's in a daze and he's, he doesn't remember what happened and he's looking around for the living Moar. I thought he was either looking for her body or hoping that her spirit would still be there and contactable mm -hmm. as it was right after she had died. Uh, yeah, I, I didn't think that he had forgotten, but sort of unclear. Well, there's ample evidence in the show that Jared is a new type. And so calling all of this new type space, I buy it. There's considerably less evidence that Moar is a new type. There's a little bit. Uh, but whereas the Lala was this exceptionally powerful new type, it's harder for me to buy Moar's strength of presence here. 
And the things that she says that sound like a premonition or a wish, I started wondering, like, is this Jared's subconscious? (laughs) Like, is he actually just passed out and dreaming her and imagining what he would want her to say? Because it's all things like, you will never lose. You are the one able to guide the world in the proper direction to survive and to fight. That is the correct path for you. Uh, Hero stuff and also stuff to make him feel like, one, it's not all pointless. And two, uh, to assuage some of that survivor guilt that he has to be feeling really heavily at this point. Yeah. Every time somebody matters to him, they die. And it all feels so calculated to make him feel better that I felt some doubt about, (laughs) like, are these Moar's wishes for him? Are we meant to think she's having some kind of like future sense about this? That I definitely don't buy. So I think... Perhaps the best evidence that this is not truly new type space, though that there's something more going on, is that when Jared comes out of it, his arm has gone numb. I talked to Dr. Shah about this. Oh. I initially asked her if this could be a stroke, because in our previous episode, she mentioned that high G-forces on the body can cause a gas embolism and that that can basically be a stroke. Um... After talking her through Jared's symptoms, what happens to him and then what he experiences, including the visual and the auditory hallucinations, the numb arm, she said it sounded a lot like a seizure. So it's entirely possible that Jared was not having a new type experience. Jared was just having a seizure. I don't know what to think. Well, hmm. if this show were coming out right now, I would think they were setting us up to have Jared make a big turnaround and become one of the heroes of the show in the later portion of the show. But this is not a contemporary show. (laughs) This is a show made in the 80s. Jared has been less horrible as time has gone on, but he's still so obviously on the wrong side. Well, and you say less horrible because his personality has gotten better, but he's doing things like trying to gas a colony. So in a lot of ways, he's actually gotten more horrible, even as he's gotten more tolerable. We're seeing less of that sort of personal abusive violence. But yes, we are seeing bigger, (laughs) larger scale, more impersonal violence. Uh, It's hard to see how they could possibly turn this around for him. Unless he pulls a char and kills a bunch of the Titans. On his way out. (laughs) So long, suckers. He puts on a mask and starts killing. Or takes off his mask. and (laughs) It was a mask all along. (laughs) So a while back, I said there was a second part of the Moar death scene I wanted to talk about. And to really talk about it, I actually have to go back and talk about Fa and Camille first. So let's talk about Fa and Camille. Are we back to an episode with a man as the lead writer? Gosh, how did you know? Just leave the piloting to me, Fa. You should go play with the children. Yeah, that's bizarre. It doesn't, like, yeah, it's a series from the 80s. It's sci-fi anime. It's, there's a lot of misogyny in it. But um, that is so totally the opposite of things that Camille has said throughout the show. Right, he's constantly pressuring her to take piloting more seriously. Yeah, he's constantly on her case about doing her piloting duties. Last episode, last episode, he sees her with the kids and he's like, oh, you're going to be such a strong pilot. It's almost as if he was being written by a different person episode to episode. 
because he's being written by a different person episode to episode. And I'm beginning to think that they have a serious disagreement about some of these characters, including <laughs> Camille, Fa, and Moar. It's horrible because I also thought we were maybe going to get a nice moment because at first Camille's encouraging her to play with them and he's like, uh, we could die at any time. And I thought it was going to be a like, we can't just live for piloting. We have to have other things that we love and enjoy and value. Yeah, that'd in be a life. classic Camille kind of thing to say. And like, you're working really hard. You are a legit pilot. Like, also go have some fun, please. But instead, it's like, oh no, leave the piloting to me. <laughs> Ugh, what a wasted opportunity. Right? This is character assassination. I did, however, appreciate that Fa doesn't get upset when Bright dresses her down. She's very calm about it. But for real, how? How does Bright get off getting on Camille and Fa's case? This isn't a daycare. Did you say that to Quattro when he left the children here? <laughs> Did you say that to Quattro when he first brought the kids aboard and you could have told him, absolutely not, you cannot bring kids onto this ship? No. Somehow it's Fa's fault? I am having to resist the urge to curse so strongly right now. Be strong. I'm so angry. Flames on the sides of my face. <laughs> uh, and then he yells at Camille for talking back. Immediately afterwards, the kids start taunting Bright. And he whacks Haro and he walks away. And a bunch of really interesting things happen there. First of all, yelling at Camille for talking back, but not at the kids. I think it's interesting, the different standards for the different people. Sure. But having him whack Haro out of frustration, I think, is really interesting because that's a thing that has happened before. It's happened with Fa. It's happened with cats. It's a thing people do when they're overwhelmed by emotions, when they're irritated, and when they're behaving irresponsibly. The show is telling us it doesn't like what Bright is doing here. The show is telling us Bright's being unreasonable. Now, when I talk about the scriptwriters for these individual episodes, I'm relying for this on the credits that are given to them and that are compiled by the Anime News Network Encyclopedia, which is the most comprehensive and reliable source for this in English. For the first 16 episodes of Zeta, Tomino himself, through a pseudonym, has a writing credit on every episode. He shares it with other people. There's almost always another scriptwriter sharing the episode with him. And then occasionally he's credited for episodes after that, up until next episode. Episode 31 is the last episode that Tomino has a writing credit on for Zeta. At that point, would he have already been working on another project? It's very likely he was already splitting his time with uh, his next project. And for what it's worth, Tomino has talked about um, really not remembering the production process at this point very well. So while he's still involved, it's still a Tomino project. His direct involvement with the scripts, with the storylines, with the individual episodes is reduced at this point. The other thing worth noting is that the remaining episodes are split between two writers for the most part, between Endo and Suzuki. And Endo only came onto the project during the Hong Kong arc. So he came in towards the latter half of Zeta, and I think it's worth paying attention to who's writing which episodes because we are, I think, perceiving the influence of a new hand on the steering wheel and one that is interested in taking the story in a different direction. The other aspect of Fa's situation in this episode that was very frustrating for me is that what is she doing but what Camille and Katz have done many times, which is ignore orders because they get a new type sense 
that something is very wrong and someone needs their help and they go and do it. Forget about Katz and Camille. Think about Emma when they were doing the Jaburo drop operation. Emma, who flagrantly ignored orders even while in command of the mission. And yet somehow in Fa's case, because it was to go save the lives of a couple of children. Which everyone agrees was a good thing for her to do. And a heroic thing. And not to mention her putting out the fire in the living quarters of the Argama may have saved the whole ship. Yeah. But somehow when she does these things, it's disqualifying. It means she's not fit to be a pilot. Excuse me? And here, like that earlier scene with Wright and the kids, the visual language of the episode is at odds with the script. The show depicts Fa's behavior as heroic. She's doing a good thing. She's doing a necessary thing. She's saving the kids. She's saving the ship. And she comes in like a hero, like yeah. bandaged up and leaning on Rekawa's arm. And you can tell that she's ready to be in trouble. She is like braced for it. And when she gets thanked instead, she bursts into tears. There's another aspect to the language of the show reinforcing this idea that, yeah, Fa absolutely belongs as a hero. When she first appears on screen, she's performing maintenance on a mobile suit. Mm -hmm. The music in the background is sweet strings, kind of nostalgic. It's nice. This is the music they use for scenes of normalcy and family and rightness. In that ending scene, did you notice Camille's shifting expression? Because it changes. He, he shifts between three different expressions in tight succession. When he's looking at Fa... And the kids like thanking her for saving them. It's like a, a very slight smile. It's a sweet expression. And then he turns away slightly and it gets very stern and serious. Because he's back to thinking about the battle he was just in. And then when he turns again, he's trying not to cry. And he doesn't. He does not cry. But you can tell his eyes go very wide and they make uh, his face look like it's quivering. There's a flicker in the animation that depicts a certain amount of effort to maintain his yeah. facial expression. Yeah. Camille is preoccupied by childhood, by innocence, by its endangerment, by its loss. His own and those of the children that he encounters, Hathaway and Chaman, Shinta and Gum. You see it in his wistful expressions when he sees the model airplane, when he talks to Four about her childhood. Camille's own childhood, we have every reason to think, was awful. And he's been thrust immediately into this adult world, killing, narrowly avoiding being killed. And he's seeing these kids, for all that they're full of life and energy, for all that they're having their childhood right now, being exposed to the same thing. It's hard to know if he's crying for himself or for them or for both. I would say both. Because, and this is pretty grim, sorry, but Gundam is a grim show. He makes that comment at the very end of the episode that the dead don't cry. He is both comforting himself and feeling sorry for himself that the dead have been released from all this suffering. That even the people he's killed no longer have to live through the war, no longer have to fight, no longer have to live in fear. He doesn't want to die yet. But he does sound a little envious here. And compare that to Jared in the previous episode talking about how the 
the anger, the grudges of those who have died still clings to him. Jared does not see the dead as free of all of this, but still trapped by it. And in that way, they're both talking about how the past, the ghosts of the past, the tragedies of the past, still linger on in their lives today, how they are living in the wreckage of their own sins. And this episode again returns to a setting that Zeta has come back to time and again, which is a wrecked colony. Sometimes it's a colony that crashed into the moon. Sometimes it's an incomplete colony where construction was abandoned. Sometimes it's a wrecked colony. Sometimes it's a deserted colony where everyone was killed by gas. But over and over and over, Zeta has come back to destroyed colonies. I can't help but think of this from a sort of social and historical perspective of how many of these colonies were abandoned because there weren't enough people, how many broke down and weren't livable anymore? How many are like some high-rise construction that you see in New York City where somebody started the project and then didn't have enough money to finish it? Uh, What is the story behind all of this debris? And we see all of these wrecked colonies. We see all this debris juxtaposed with a seemingly endless cycle of newly introduced shiny new mobile suits shiny new war cruisers. When Jared and Moar were using those asteroids for cover and then also using the abandoned colony or partially built colony as a trap, I found myself thinking the more of this debris accumulates in space, the more impossible it gets to avoid being ambushed, uh, even if they had sensors that would work. you know. And we have the Minovsky particle thing, and so we don't really... But if you're dependent on visual spotters and there's all of this stuff to hide behind and not just stuff to hide behind, but a lot of material that's also metal, that's also old mobile suits or old ships, how easy it would be to blend in and get close to an enemy. From the perspective of a ship's captain, what a horrible, (laughs) horrible place to have to fight. Oh, yeah. I love the bit, there's just a sidebar about the visuals in the episode where uh, they shift the angle of the shot of the bridge so that it's off kilter. It's not, uh, to the audience, it looks that the floor is tilted because it gives us this impression of chaos, of a ship that's taken damage. To them, it all feels the same, right? (laughs) This is just to give us, where we are, a sense of things being wrong. You want to talk about small visual things I liked. I like that Beckner spits out his soda when he gets news that they're about to be attacked. I didn't notice that. That's great. He does a spit take, which in space, that globule of soda. Backwash. Probably kept going until it hit somebody or something. (laughs) You were also very pleased. So pleased that it wound up in the next time ons for last episode, but that we see some actual like attempt at fleet tactics (laughs) in this episode. Jared calls Gotti a genius for coming up with a plan uh, really no more complex than pincer attack. Using all of the available dimensions instead of behaving as though they are not in fact in space. Shocking. (laughs) Mind blowing. They're coming at us from below. Gotti must be beyond a new type. Yeah, I'm never quite certain whether they simplify the battle visuals because they've tried to do other things and it's too visually confusing for the audience or whether it's out of like laziness on their part. Because <laughs> think about it. There's no reason all the ships should be on the same plane. 
or oriented in the same directions right. relative to each other. Like, why aren't some of the ships pointed what looks like up to us and some forward and some 45 degrees down? Yeah. I assume we have trouble visually, like, handling that. It just, when I try to picture it in my head, I'm like, it looks more messy than interesting. And the, the fleet battles are not the strength of Gundam. I assume they never will be. Everybody gets into Gundam for the mobile suits. And so, yeah. you know, why spend a lot of energy on fleet battle? I read an interview with Tomino once where he was talking about why it was so important for him to have the Minofsky particle. Why it was so important for him to have mobile suits get so close together that they could fight within visual range. He had looked at the problem of space combat quite extensively as a director of visual media, and he had concluded that you couldn't create a dramatically interesting and emotionally connected shot unless you could get both mobile suits into the same frame at the same time. That if it were a true space battle, they would be fighting from such an incredibly far remove that you would never see them together, and they'd just be shooting super long-range missiles at each other in the brief moments before their relative incredibly high velocities carried them out of range again. Not interesting to watch. Right. Oh, I don't think we've seen this yet, but I wouldn't be surprised if it comes up eventually in Gundam. But the the possibility of somebody essentially being sniped unexpectedly, they're out in their mobile suit and they get hit without even having known the enemy was there. That would be very shocking. Mm -hmm. But you couldn't have a whole fight (laughs) where you can't see the enemy. Certainly you would never be able to keep a franchise going for 40 years if that was the crux of the action. And now time for our research. This week, Nina looked into kissing in Japan, and I researched the Young Officers' Revolt of 1936 and its connections to the Universal Century. My timing is a little off. This would have been an ideal topic for St. Valentine's Day in a few weeks, but Zeta and the podcast schedule don't care about such things. (laughs) And after my observation of Jared's consistent surprise whenever Moar kisses him, this seemed like the right moment to talk about kissing in Japanese culture. There was a long-held belief by Europeans that kissing did not exist in Japanese culture prior to exposure to the West. This is something of an exaggeration. Kissing does show up in old pornographic artwork, but that's just it. In Japanese culture, kissing was an entirely erotic sexual practice. Family and friends did not kiss each other, and kissing wasn't done in public. And even in the context of erotic artwork, kisses were not common. Throughout the late 1800s, this posed some difficulties as cultural exchange became more common. In one novel, the main character's desire to kiss the coral lips of his love interest was, when translated into Japanese, translated as a desire to lick said lips. A silent film from the United States, shown in Osaka in 1887, depicted a long embrace and kiss and caused a scandal. The professional narrator had to explain that this was common and acceptable behavior in America. (laughs) There is a Japanese word for kiss, seppun, composed of the kanji for touch or contact and the kanji for proboscis. Like nose? I guess so. But this word is rarely used, and in most contexts, kisu, the Japanese pronunciation of the English word kiss, is used, again, emphasizing the foreignness of the act itself. 
It wasn't long after that that public kissing was made illegal and punishable by fine or detention. This statute remained in effect until the occupation began in 1945. When did the statute first come into existence? Late 1800s. So for about 50 years, kissing was illegal. In public. Do whatever you want in your home, but no kissing in public. The law caused considerable disruption to an exhibition of French modern art in Tokyo in 1924. Rodin's The Kiss, a sculpture of a nude couple kissing, was meant to be part of the exhibition, but the Tokyo Metropolitan Police banned it for violating the law. An essay by Donald Ritchie put it, The Japanese authorities were scandalized that such a thing should be shown, and the French authorities were scandalized that it would not be. Although, to be fair, it sounds as though the kiss caused a kerfuffle everywhere it was exhibited, sparking charges of obscenity in Brussels, Paris, the United States, England, and Canada. Ultimately, in the Tokyo exhibition, the sculpture was confined to a special room and was partially obscured by a bamboo screen. Ironically, it is now on permanent public display in the plaza of the Tokyo Museum of Western Art. During the height of Japan's pre-war militarism in the 1930s, Westerners were often portrayed as decadent, morally deficient, sexually deviant, and lascivious. However, during the occupation, exposure to American moors on public physical affection couldn't help but affect Japanese society. Not only did GIs frequently engage in public displays of affection with sex workers, things like embracing, putting an arm around her, or kissing her, but 200 wives of senior officers moved to Japan during the occupation period and could be seen holding hands with husbands or kissing them hello and goodbye. Sources describe young children play-acting these roles, little girls clinging to the arms of little boys in an imitation and emulation of the American soldiers they saw in the streets. There was a strong association between westernization, women's rights as enshrined in the new constitution, and sexual liberation. While the occupation force did engage in censorship of many topics, Issues around obscenity and morality were not among them. Prior to the occupation, women did not have to consent to a marriage. Once a woman's consent was required, romance became something of practical relevance rather than being relegated to tragic plays. Or literature written by and for women. Before, men and women largely kept to separate spheres. But after seeing men and women out together in parks, coffee shops, and movie theaters became more normalized, dating started to slowly become part of young adult and adult life. There were prominent public discussions of dating and romantic love on the radio and in print, and even articles on kissing etiquette and technique, especially in pulp magazines of the time. But even during this time of westernization and frank discussion of romance and sex, for heterosexual couples at least, there was considerable debate over whether kissing really had a place in Japanese culture. Many people considered it unhygienic, unesthetic, and culturally inappropriate. Its foreignness, especially as a public act, persisted. To some, kissing was hugely symbolic. Takahashi Tetsu, an early post-war sex researcher, considered public kissing a symbol of democracy. He rejected the narrative that it had never been part of Japan's sexual customs, and saw its revival as marking the end of gloomy, feudal customs. The Occupation Authority actually pressured filmmakers to include kissing in films of that time. But despite all of this, kissing remained a very private, erotic act, one that was acceptable but was never supposed to be visible. And as with other sexual activity, there was a strong sense that it ought to lead to marriage. 
Even now, kissing in public and many other public displays of affection are considered rude and distasteful. In several recent articles that I read from the early 2010s, even handholding in public was described as rare. While in the United States, a certain amount of physical affection in public is expected, to the point where a lack of it might be remarked upon, or even taken as a sign that the relationship isn't going well, or that one of the partners is trying to hide the relationship, for many Japanese people, it's not a priority. It's not among the ways in which they want to express or receive affection. It's difficult to know the extent to which Gundam portrays Japanese culture as the culture of the characters and the world because that is the default for its writers and how much it may be a conscious decision to portray Japanese culture or a more multicultural society or even culture clashes between different characters. We also have some recent insight into Tomino's perspective. In an interview for Japanese Playboy magazine, he complained about the very chaste romance and affection of Makoto Shinkai's films. Your Name had come out just a little while before the interview. When prompted for an example of a sexy cartoon at the panel we attended at Anime NYC, he mentioned Disney's Snow White, a story where the kiss is of huge significance. There's no telling if he felt the same way 35 years ago, but given all the cultural context, to what degree is the inclusion of kissing in Gundam a political, pro-democracy, pro-freedom act? All of the Zeta Gundam kisses that I remember are very brief, and they all take place in public spaces that are empty other than the kissing characters, but where another person could arrive at any time. And they are almost all accompanied by some level of shock or embarrassment. These characters are being moved by very strong feelings, but are also exhibiting some shame or self-consciousness over their behavior. Think of Camille getting up and walking away from four after they kiss in that rooftop garden which I'm suddenly much more sympathetic with because he's just done something shocking, frankly. <laughs> and, with someone he barely knows. Right, in a wide open place. Anybody could look out their window of one of these other office buildings and see them. Or somebody could come out onto the garden. Well, maybe he's thinking, gosh, do we need to get married now? At least where kissing is concerned, the show does seem to be following Japanese social customs. I'm remembering now when Camille gets back to the Argama and he goes and he embraces Fa and it looks like he's going to kiss her and she's really shocked and then he doesn't kiss her but they embrace and while they're embracing Bright walks out of his room into the hallway and sees them and there's this moment where you think maybe Bright is going to say something but then he doesn't and he just walks away and it feels like Bright is ignoring it because it's so intimate but also being done in public. And it would be very embarrassing if he said anything. The best thing he can do for them is just pretend he hasn't seen it. Yeah, I had even lived in Japan, but I had never quite put together that for the most part in Japan, kissing is sexual. There are no friendly kisses. And so that's why you see so little of it and why when it does appear, it is sometimes treated as shocking. I love thinking of kissing in Gundam as a political act and of its depiction in Gundam as a political act for the creators. As you said, it's a symbol of democracy. And then the backlash against kissing, the construction of kissing as like a weird, private, hidden, or even impermissible thing is an artifact of the Japanese imperialism, of militarism, of that ultra-nationalist government. 
one of the papers that I will link to in the show notes goes into a little more detail about the sexual politics of Imperial Japan and what sort of cultural attitude toward sex the government of the time wanted to inculcate in people. But it was very much oriented toward sex is not about love or enjoyment or bonding. Sex is about making more Japanese people to be organs of the state for our grand empire. And it's worth remembering Tomino would have been of an age to maybe be one of those little kids play acting, playing at being, this sounds so weird, but a GI. He's just the right age for it. This is part one of a two-part research piece on A. Yug, Melanie Hugh Carbine, and the Young Officers' Revolt of February 26, 1936. This week, I'm going to talk about the background and the context. Next week, the revolt itself. It is less than a decade after the last Great War, but the military is still trapped in a simmering and seemingly endless battle against the lingering remnants of their defeated enemy. The people are suffering. The government, dominated by oligarchs, remains isolated from them, and the soldiers are divided between feuding factions. Young officers, believing themselves to be more in touch with the common people, demand that the corrupt politicians be swept away, along with those military officers who support the status quo. They are joined in this by a handful of civilians, some former soldiers, and political radicals who share their beliefs. Their goals beyond that are more obscure, verging into the spiritual. And above all, they share a reverence for the homeland, a hunger for reform, and a growing sense of urgency. They must act soon. This is Japan in the 1930s and the Earth sphere in the Universal Century 80s. Japan, like Earth in the Universal Century, had spent the last half century extending its dominion over a swarm of colonial possessions, separated from the capital by leagues of ocean. The Ryukyu, Kurile, Nanpo, Mariana, Caroline and Marshall Island chains, Taiwan, Korea, Sakhalin, and most recently Manchuria. Despite Japanese occupation, Manchuria was still aflame as local militias fought a bloody insurgency campaign against the Imperial Japanese Kwantung Army. Tens of thousands of soldiers from Japan, along with local collaborators, were engaged in the brutal subjugation of the resistance. In Japan, the government was still dominated by spiritual and, in many cases, literal descendants of the political, military, and business elites who engineered the Meiji Restoration some seven decades prior. That restoration, named for the Emperor Meiji in whose name it had been fought, swept aside the crumbling old military feudal government of the Tokugawa clan and replaced it with a parliamentary monarchy, nominally ruled by the sacred emperor, but in effect controlled by the powerful ministers around him most of whom had risen from relatively obscure birth in minor samurai clans living in the far southwest of the Japanese home islands. As much as the Japanese home islands dominated her colonies, as much as Japanese people enjoyed privileges over the people born in her imperial possessions, ambitious men throughout Japan found it hard to advance in their careers if they happened to have been born in the wrong provinces. This handful of men and those they patronized dominated the highest ranks in Japanese society, even as the Japanese economy came to be dominated by a handful of massive, vertically integrated, family-owned corporations called Zaibatsu. In the parliament, tensions between the political parties allowed the army and the navy to acquire greater independence, greater power, and ever greater budgets. Still, 
There was a prevailing narrative of corruption in the highest ranks, a sickness in society that was poisoning the whole nation. The emperor was rumored to spend his time playing board games with the empress and studying microbiology instead of more traditional, manly pursuits. The politicians were too quick to capitulate to the Western powers, too willing to hamstring Japan's military might by agreeing to limits on the size of the fleet imposed by the Washington and London naval treaties. And it was too slow to approve further incursions into Manchuria. In the late 20s and early 30s, political violence became more and more common. Right-wing radicals acting alone or in small groups to assassinate politicians, businessmen, and officers who they deemed to be enemies of their imagined version of the state. On February 26, 1936, these simmering tensions boiled over, and after a decade of organizing, theorizing, and agitating, after multiple coup attempts aborted at the last minute, a group of young army officers, mostly lieutenants and captains, stationed in Tokyo, led 1,400 soldiers out of barracks and into revolt as they attempted to bring down the government and inspire a national restoration, a restoration for the Showa era that they imagined would complete the work started by the glorious and now near-mythic Meiji Restoration, sweeping away the corrupt individuals who surrounded the emperor. What exactly this restoration would mean was always left rather vague. Partly this was because the young officers did not themselves entirely agree. Partly they thought that the emperor himself ought to decide, and that suggesting anything to him would be sacrilege, although they did consider replacing him if he decided wrongly. And partly they just did not want to alienate any potential supporters. They believed that the whole nation, including much of the military leadership, was hungry for this restoration, and that they would all join the revolt once awakened by the initial violence. Yet, we can say that they did want a stronger military that was more fully supported by the government. Yet, they did not want a military government. A government dominated by military elites was, in their minds, just as bad as one dominated by political or business elites. They wanted to eliminate what they called the privileged classes. Some of their literature talks about limiting private wealth and transferring the bulk of the nation's property to the direct ownership of the emperor. Some who have looked at the young officers' movement have called their ideology imperial communism or imperial socialism, but they saw themselves as rightists, and they were called as much by their contemporaries, even if they hated the conservatives and centrists who upheld the status quo. Some historians call them proto-fascists, and that's partly true, but it's more useful when describing the role they played in history rather than as a label for their ideology. In their most utopian dreams, the young officers imagined that this post-restoration Japan, which would have the strongest navy in the world, that was one of their very specific demands, would go forth on a crusade against the white imperial powers of Europe and America, liberating the oppressed people of the world over by making them subjects of the divinely ordained Japanese empire instead. In the short term, they envisioned seizing Siberia from the Russians and Australia from the British. There is an element of agrarianism in their ideology. The land, the peasant, the nation, the emperor, and the army are all linked, all sacred. This is the national body, the kokutai. Everything else is parasitic. 
But they looked at the world and they saw that the parasites had grown so large and so hungry that they threatened the sacred Kokotai. And yet, the young officers were children of wealth and privilege. They had received excellent educations. Many were closely related to important military and political figures or descended from old samurai clans. Among their leaders, there were brilliant soldiers with sterling credentials and excellent prospects. But as junior officers, they were in constant contact with the enlisted soldiers drawn from the poor, from destitute families in impoverished communities. In the Neo-Confucian philosophy of the military, these young officers were expected to be like fathers to their men. Many of the young officers would talk about how they became radicalized through their men after hearing stories from enlisted soldiers in the glorious and sacred imperial army about how they were forced to debase themselves and their families just to survive crushing poverty. Before the uprising began, the young officers had been aligned with a faction inside the army called the Kodoha, the Imperial Way faction, organized around the influential General Araki. The Imperial Way faction's goals were more certain. They wanted the eradication of borrowed Western ideas like capitalism and democracy, the reversal of Japan's industrialization, the abolition of the Zaibatsu, and war with the Soviet Union to end forever the threat of communism. The Imperial Way faction absolutely did want a military government, and while the February 26th incident would ultimately put an end to the Imperial Way faction, their ideological torch would be picked up by the militarists of the 1940s. The Imperial Way faction's main opponents were the Toseha, or control faction, a loose group that opposed Araki personally and disagreed with his anti-modernization philosophy. Still, they wanted much of what he wanted, more military power, stronger national defense. And where Araki wanted aggressive, rapid expansion, the control faction wanted slower, measured expansion. Fearing that the control faction was winning their rivalry, in 1934, the Imperial Way faction sponsored a plot that would use military academy cadets to assassinate key government figures. The plot was discovered, and General Mazaki, a key member of the Imperial Way faction, was forced to step down from his post as head of military education. And yes, people who have watched more Gundam than the podcast has covered, I know, I'm thinking about it too. <laughs> Don't spoil me, bro. In response to General Mazaki's forced resignation, a young Imperial Way faction officer killed the leader of the control faction with a sword. In response to that, the control faction decided that it was finally time to send the young officers who they saw as the most dangerous and unpredictable allies of the Imperial Way faction, out of the capital. Most of the young officers belonged to the 1st Infantry Division, a unit based in Tokyo that had not seen action since 1905 in the Russo-Japanese War. They would be sent to join the fighting in Manchuria, far away from any opportunities to make mischief. They were to have been sent in the spring of 1936. You can see echoes of this internecine feuding in the struggle between Ayug and the Titans, both ideologically motivated factions within the Federation military fighting against each other more than they're really fighting for anything. Like the young officers, Ayug is full of passion and energy. They fight for the people and for the sake of the planet, against corruption and oligarchy. But their philosophy remains obscure, and it's never clear what the world they are fighting for would actually look like. And for all of their populist rhetoric, Ayug is a small elite organization, not a mass movement. For all their rhetoric about corrupt politicians, 
They are armed, sheltered, and bankrolled by the very oligarchs running the universal century equivalent of a zaibatsu. And so were the young officers. In the 1930s, as the world suffered through the Great Depression and the once-surging Japanese economy weakened, the zaibatsu companies grew ever wealthier. The public mood turned hard against them, and they were attacked from both the left and the right. On the left, the labor unions became increasingly aggressive, and their members became increasingly friendly to communist ideas. While on the right, demagogues and terrorists marked zaibatsu leaders for assassination. In 1921, a nationalist lawyer assassinated the president of the Yasuda concern. In 1932, in the League of Blood incident, which Nina covered more extensively back in episode 2.22, Buddhist ultranationalists loosely affiliated with the young officers assassinated the director general of Mitsui. The Zaibatsu decided that some action was necessary. They could hire guards and dress their executives in bulletproof clothing, and they did, but they also had to dispel the public image of them as greedy, corrupt, and callous. They began to dedicate significant sums of money to charitable foundations, with a particular focus on supporting veterans groups, because they understood that utterly impoverished veterans, still haunted by their experiences in the endless war overseas, feeling betrayed and abandoned by their nation after they were no longer useful to it, were among the most likely to become extremists. They also invested heavily in private intelligence networks with informants inside or close to the right-wing cells most likely to turn terrorist, who could warn the company of any upcoming danger. And on top of that, they also just directly funded those same groups. The Zaibatsu, from ancient and prestigious Mitsui to relative upstarts rising to prominence on the spoils of the recent Korean and Manchurian conquests like Nissan, yes, that Nissan, were secretly paying significant sums of money to right-wing extremists. In 1931, a nationalist faction within the army called the Sakurakai was plotting a coup to establish a totalitarian military dictatorship. They went to Mitsui and they asked for 200,000 yen, which was about $100,000 in 1931, or a little over $1.5 million in today's terms. A few days later, Mitsui gave them the money, no questions asked. Mitsui funding also found its way to the young officers, along with money from other zaibatsu, and to numerous other right-wing extremists as well. In part, these were simple protection payments. It's not hard to see how the anti-corruption, anti-modernization, anti-industry sentiments of the Imperial Way faction and the young officers movement could easily shift from political violence to anti-zaibatsu sabotage. In part, these payments were made just to keep the channels of information open. In part, they were made to ensure friendly relations with the radicals in the event that they ever succeeded. But for some Zaibatsu leaders, there was a real belief in the cause of the young officers and those like them. And sometimes they cynically just hoped to use these young idealists to advance their own agenda. In early 1936, right-wing elements of the Seiyukai political party plotted to bring down the moderate anti-war, anti-militarist cabinet of Prime Minister Okada Keisuke. Their leader was Kuhara Fusunosuke, a Zaibatsu leader turned politician who was never shy about funneling money to right-wing groups and supporting terrorist action if it advanced his political ambitions. When his faction introduced a vote of no confidence against the Prime Minister, Okada responded by calling for new elections. The Prime Minister's political allies in the Minseto party, running on an explicitly anti-fascist platform, 
Their election slogan was something like, what's it going to be, a parliament or fascism? One big at the polls. But the nationalists were determined to see an end to Okada as prime minister, one way or another. The people weren't with them, but Kuhara had allies in the military, a group of young officers who were itching to take action before they were forced to leave the capital. When they told him they had a plan to assassinate the prime minister on February 26, 1936, he passed a significant sum of money their way. Back in the early part of Zeta, we named episode 2.9 Political Considerations, because that was the episode in which Quattro and Blex met with Wong Lee and other financial backers to discuss Ayug's next moves. Despite Quattro and Blex's misgivings, Wong insisted that Ayug must strike now against the Federation's Jaburo headquarters. His reasons for insisting they do so were political. Wong is not a leader of Ayug, or even really a member. The same for Carbine. They're businessmen. The closest equivalent to them in the real world is probably those old Zaibatsu leaders. We can't say for sure why Carbine is funding and supplying Ayuk, but it's probably for all the same reasons that the Zaibatsu funded the violent political dissidents of their own day. A mixture of protection, information, idealism, and a cynical attempt to advance their own ambitions. After all, if you are in the business of designing and selling weapons, and let us pause for a moment to reflect on the fact that Carbine is an arms manufacturer named for a type of rifle. But if you are in the business of selling weapons to the army, it is in your interests to make sure they have somebody to fight. And if the side you're secretly backing happens to win, so much the better for you. Find a way to back both sides without alienating either, and you are bound to win, no matter what happens. There is a streak of the grotesque that runs through the character designs of Zeta Gundam. Compared to the beautiful, unblemished young heroes around whom the show's action revolves, Camille, Jared, Fa, Emma, Moar, Quattro, Bright, and so on, Basque Alm perpetually looks like a partly melted candle. Captain Gotti, as Nina pointed out when he first appeared, looks like a reanimated corpse. Jamatov Hyman looks like he wants to drink your blood. But this is not merely a question of age. Basque Alm is 38. <laughs> no! But Blex Forer got to be handsome, and he was 20 years older. What? Yeah. Blex Forer was almost 60. Marks of age, of decay, of inactivity, of comfort, wrinkles, jowls, sloping foreheads, these mark out men, powerful ones, who stand at the top of the rigid hierarchy of the universal century. They are all markers, for the audience, of depravity. Carbine, himself, looks a bit like a gargoyle stuffed into an expensive suit just slightly too small for him. And this is emphasized by the show at every turn. From his first appearance, he is flanked and shadowed by beautiful young women. When he dismisses them, he shares the scene with Quattro, tall, buff, ideal of a certain sort of masculine beauty. We don't know much about him, but we have little reason to like the man. These are not the men who do things. They are the men for whom things are done. Like Basque, Hyman, and Blex, Carbine's presence has been felt in the show even when he's absent. There is some advantage for him in the battles between Ayug and the Titans. Camille pilots the Zeta Gundam and kills Moar with it because it is convenient for Melanie Hugh Carbine that he have a weapon like that.
from skeptical, cautious operator to devoted and supportive lover, we've seen Moar resist Sirocco's efforts at charm and fall for Jared's hot-headed single-mindedness. Despite our mixed feelings about her characterization and development, she died protecting someone she loves. She told Jared she would be there for him until the end, and she was. I can respect that. We're not sure if she's living on in the ether, as new types do, or if she was just a figment of Jared's traumatized mind. But I like to think that she's still around. We went looking for beautiful, meaningful poetry for Moar, and we even picked out a few good ones. But as we were working on this elegy, I remembered a movie that Nina loves, and a line from it that fits Moar uncomfortably well. Jared, I love you. Not like they told you love is, and I didn't know this either, but love doesn't make things nice. It ruins everything. It breaks your heart. It makes things a mess. We aren't here to make things perfect. The cherry blossoms are perfect. The stars are perfect. Not us. Not us. We are here to ruin ourselves and to break our hearts and to love the wrong people and die. Moonstruck is a 1987 romantic comedy set in Brooklyn, New York, and starring Cher, who won a Best Actress Academy Award for her performance, opposite a very young Nicolas Cage. The screenplay was by John Patrick Shanley, who won an Academy Award for Best Writing. We made a few small edits. No one in Moonstruck is named Jared, and the original says Snowflake rather than Cherry Blossoms. Next time on episode 2.32, Saturday in the Park, we cover Molesuit Zeta Gundam episode 31 and Dear Diary, Hanburabi. Every casual outfit in this show is amazing. Running Man, Midriff, Sarah and Camille go on a date. Decorative mobile suit pilots. Stowaways. Angrily firing your gun into the air. And I'm a baby bird. I am printed. It can't be helped. You will see the tears of time. Remember to do all of the podcast things. Subscribe and review Mobile Suit Breakdown wherever you get your podcasts. Then pledge your undying devotion to Mobile Suit Breakdown on Patreon, where you can find great bonus content, get access to the MSB Discord, get exclusive MSB merchandise, and, you know, support the podcast. You can also follow at Gundam Podcast on Twitter and Instagram, and like us at facebook.com slash Gundam Podcast for all kinds of extra content. And you should always check out our website, GundamPodcast.com, for all of our episodes, show notes, watch list, wish list, some other lists, and more. Plus, you can always email your questions, comments, and complaints to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. 
or just shout your wrong Gundam opinion at us in person by coming to scenic New York City and yelling, Jared will never lose because he is the one able to guide the world in the proper direction. To survive, to fight, that is the correct path for him. On any busy street corner, we will totally hear you. Our wrong Gundam opinion this week comes from Moar Farrow. Thanks, Moar. Music used in the TNN was Floating Cities, and the music for Moar's Elegy was Clear Waters, both by Kevin McLeod. The intro song is Wasp by Misha Dioxin, and the closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links and more in the show notes. And thank you for listening. we have time to unpack all of the things that are wrong with that in our normal episode. But that would be like the only research piece and we would probably both work on it. Dangar for Men, the new fragrance from Atelier Paptimus. Some of you may already know this, but if you are involved with a lawyer, you will learn law by (laughs) osmosis. They can't help it. Hammurabi. 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 But it's not mu. I thought you said it was mu. It's hanbrabi. Hanbu. Hanburabi. Okay, I have to re-record that then. (laughs) Downtrodden people on space. (laughs) On space. (laughs) (laughs) This sentence is sorry. That's okay. La 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 la. No, it's more, more, more. It feels really weird to imagine that, like, kids were running around pretending to be sex workers, but... (laughs) It's very glamorous. It's true. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, it's weird that kids run around pretending to be soldiers. Yeah. Or to kill each other. Yeah. Cops and robbers. Cowboys and Indians. Mm Mm-hmm. I was just thinking that. Well, and kids commonly play act getting married. Kids do weird stuff, y'all. Yep. Well, we are, um... Our society is bombarding them with all kinds of messages about how to live and how to be, and kids play as a way to process those. This is what adults do, right? Get married and shoot each other? (laughs) I wish that were less true than it is. That military-industrial complex, yo. Eisenhower tried to warn us, is all I'm going to say. And then you'll need to do a music credit for whatever music. Yep. Yes, I will. But I do not have it selected yet, and so I cannot do it now. So we are going to press the button to mix the recording stop. Okay.